go ahead and start. So those of you who don't know who I am, uh, my name is Paul Mills, and I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. My wife is Amanda Mills, who will be here eventually. And we've got, we're blessed with three beautiful children, Sophia Mills, Sophiana, Michael and Gabriel, who are identical twins. And then we have Miss Alexia, who's going to be here in November. So we're going to be pretty busy. And we've got three boxers to just top that off. So, And we just got one of them recently, so we like chaos. <clears throat> so I saw a quote online uh, several weeks back, actually it's been several months now, that I really liked. And it said, when someone tells you there's no such thing as truth, what they're saying, what they're telling you, is not to believe them. So don't. Uh, so what I'm going to be talking about is truth and the importance of truth. And what, what I really like is the encounter between Pilate and Jesus and the communication they had together. And Pilate says to Jesus, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Those who are of the truth listen to my voice. And then Pilate answered, what is truth? Also, Jesus says to the Jews who already believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask that you fill this room with your spirit. You just uh, have the uh, eyes of our hearts enlightened to your truth. And to know that there is truth, that you're the truth. And just pray that this will be a time that we glorify you and that we don't just take this in as, as head knowledge and let it just be intellectual knowledge, but that we'd use this to be your hands and feet in the world, that we'd glorify you in that. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and has been revealed through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week, Aaron talked about oneism and twoism or kind of this idea of paganism, or oneism. Where oneism teaches that all is divine, that we are divine, inside us we are divine, everything around us is divine, everything is a god. Whereas twoism makes a distinction between a creator and creation. Oneism blurs that distinction. Creator and creation are all one. So with oneism, uh, Peter Jones, who wrote the book One or Two, which is one of the books that Aaron recommended in his notes, he's got a, he created an organization called Truth Exchange. And I saw a quote that they did on Facebook the other day, and I really liked what it said. It said, the gospel of oneism teaches liberation from the creator, and the gospel of twoism teaches reconciliation to the creator. So he talked about this idea of oneism, 
how I like to think about it is I like to think of it's your, there's this ocean, and in that ocean are waves, and each one of us are a, we're a wave on this ocean. This is this idea of oneism where our realities were these waves, and the more you get inside yourself and the more you find your divinity, the deeper you go down into the ocean to the point of where you're one with everything. So a oneness or especially a pantheist would tell you that you don't really, when you're actually sleeping right now, that's when you're the closest to your divinity because you're getting closer to your subconscious. And so that's this idea of oneism. Um, I am he as you are he as you are me as we are all together. Who sang that? The Beatles. It's exactly oneism right there. Later on they talk about penguins kicking Hare Krishna's, you know, imagine no religion. That's exactly what's going on. That's exactly what they're teaching. So that's this idea of oneism and then twoism, creator creation. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to be talking about postmodernism. And before I really explain postmodernism, because it's very complex, it's very broad. Postmodernism is in the arts, it's in the, the movies, the music we listen to. It's, it's all around us. And you can't really slap a label and define an exact term for postmodernism. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us through what I would call the history of ideas. So we're going to start with pre-modern, and then we're going to go to modern, and then we'll go into postmodern, and just kind of get an idea of how these thoughts uh, evolve through time. So we're going to go ahead and do pre-modern. That working? Okay. So in pre-modern, which, uh, first of all, pre-modern time, you go, I'm going to cover about from the 4th century up until around the 17th century to maybe around 1780 when the French Revolution took place. That's when, uh, when there was really kind of a revolution in the politics and, the, and society around. So pre-modern will go from about 4th century to about the 17th century or the 18th century, and then modernism will go from about the French Revolution time to about the fall of the Berlin Wall, and then postmodernism from that point on. It's kind of hard to really set a specific timeline because you'll see, even in modern thought and philosophy, you'll already see, start to see strands of postmodernism thought taking place. So, so the pre-modern time, 4th century, the general idea... What the common belief was, what one of the major beliefs was, that there is objective truth, that there is truth outside of the perceiver's will. You'd call it metaphysical realism, metaphysics being the philosophical branch that deals with reality and being outside of us. So metaphysical realism would teach, when I look at you, you're real, you're really out there. It's not just a figment of my imagination, it's not just illusion, the opposite of that would be metaphysical nihilism. And an idea of metaphysical nihilism would be, how do we know that my brain is just not sitting in a jar in a laboratory and somebody's just poking and prodding and that's giving me these senses that I'm seeing people out there, but it's not real, it's not reality. So they believe in a, a metaphysical reality, things are real around us, objective truth outside the perceiver's own perception There's a supernatural realm, 
So as you can see up here, you've got the supernatural realm. There's revelation. They're, they all have the idea that truth and knowledge could actually come through revelation through God. And then faith-seeking knowledge that you had to believe in order to know for true wisdom. And that was a common phrase all through the Middle Ages was credo ut intelligum, which meant I believe in order to know. Lots of times Augustine would quote from Isaiah uh, to prove his point with that. And then another common phrase that you'll hear that was actually coined by Anselm of Canterbury is fide corens intellectum, which means faith-seeking understanding, which is up here. And so you had all those. That was the main common belief. You had, you had Eastern thought as well, but this was the majority. This was what was mostly assumed from the great thinkers. You also had the common belief that man was made in the image of God, Imago Dei. You had the idea that God created something out of nothing, ex nihilo, which is contrary to what Plato taught. Plato taught this theory of forms where immaterial things eventually uh, went into material things, and that's contrary to what uh, the Bible says. And you had the Stoic philosophers who taught that there has always been a fire, there's always been this like eternal fire, and eventually it turns into the earth, and eventually we'll, our earth will turn back into a fire. So the ex nihilo is, is a pretty biblical teaching. So you had ex nihilo, made in the image of God. Um, and so you have the major thinkers, Augustine and Aquinas. Uh, Augustine was the one that uh, really started to, to fight against the heresies that were occurring. Um, he was very, has really affected the thought of Western society, uh, Western Christianity. Uh, so you also had a common belief of linear history, that everything, was, everything in history is running in a line. So you, for, for the Bible, you have Genesis all the way through Revelation. There's a common thread. There's a beginning, and then there's going to be a fulfillment. What N.T. Wright would call that is you would call that the drama of Scripture, and so we're players in the story. It starts from Genesis all the way through Revelation, and you have different acts within this drama. And so you have creation, fall, um, redemption, restoration, and you just have these different acts within the story, and we're players within the story. Divine providence, things that were seen th- around us, were all by divine providence, by God's will. You also had this idea of teleology, which is the study you study things to understand the design and the purpose behind it. So, for instance, somebody studying a giraffe will look at the design of a giraffe and will notice that their neck, it's pretty amazing, their neck is, they've got vertebrae through their entire neck and they're connected by a ball and socket, like our shoulder, how our arm connects to our shoulder. And that allows it to flex. And when they're running, you'll see their heads going back and forth, and that's to keep their balance, their uh, center of gravity. And then when they go down and drink water, typically, if somebody had that long of a neck, they would, get, they would probably die from the blood rushing into their brain. But a giraffe has valves in their blood veins that stop blood from flowing into the brain at, fa- at a fast rate. 
as well as their hearts are larger and they have more red blood cells as well as larger lungs and they, they breathe longer and slower to allow the air to travel through their neck. So when somebody studies that, they study the design of it, that there's a designer that created it in a way to serve a purpose. And so that's this idea of teleology. So back to Augustine. So you have, you have Augustine who taught, he always talked about the authority of Scripture. His views, Augustine was from about around the 4th centuries, from 354 to 430. And then Aquinas came later in the 13th century. And what Augustine taught was that Scripture has ultimate authority. Some people would say that he was authoritarian, that he thought the church had uh, the priority or the authority. But even though his views kind of evolved through his life, he always put the authority of Scripture number one. And then according to Augustine, he, he didn't completely throw out reason. He, he always found importance with faith and reason, and he actually used reasoning in some of his uh, apologetics. But he really emphasized that faith is important, and we don't just throw faith out. Faith is important. He also said that truth is not imperishable. Truth is immutable. It never changes. It's eternal. As well as he... Um, the way, he, the way he defended the authority of Scripture and the credibility of Scripture was through um, miracles and prophecy. Those were what he called the signs of credibility for Scripture, and that's how he raised it to the level of ultimate authority was through the prophecy and miracles. Then in the 13th century, you have Thomas Aquinas, who was probably the biggest uh, Christian apologist of the Middle Ages and has been very heavily, is very influential now, just as Augustine was. And he wrote the Summa Contra Gentiles, which was the first major systematic work uh, to defend the Christian faith. And what he did is he split, he split reason and faith into two categories. He called one the truths of reason, and then he, the second category was truths of faith. And so truths of reason would be, I can prove the existence of God, so I'm going to prove it through reason, and that would be considered a truth of reason. Truth of faith would be something like the doctrine of the Trinity, that you can't figure out the doctrine of Trinity by reason alone. And so when he wrote Summa Contra Gentiles, the first, the beginning of it is all truths of reason, defending the existence of God, the unmoved mover, everything has a cause except the unmoved mover. That was one of his big uh, works. Um, And then he gets into the doctrine of the Trinity, the incarnation, what he would call truths of faith. Later on, this kind of this dichotomy he makes, some people will say that kind of led to the the whole reason, faith, and how they kind of... uh, don't work together. You'll kind of see that in the modernism era. It's, that's kind of debatable if he had an influence on that. Um, he also taught that truths of faith uh, cannot be found by reason alone and that there's not really anything you can find by just reason alone, but everything takes an assumption of faith. As Leslie Newbegin said, 
Knowing has to begin with an act of faith. We have to trust our senses, language, science, etc. So, again, the, the common theme that we see through the pre-modern era is there's objective truth. There's a truth outside of our own perception. There is absolute truth that, that um, is, is culturally neutral. It doesn't it just exist in one culture and does not exist in another culture. It's a universal truth, absolute truth. That was very common. There is revelation. God does exist. We believe in realism. Then we get into the modernism era. Let me just get the pre-modern thinkers here. Athanasius of Alexandria, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas. You had the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin was very systematic. All the reformers were, and they were heavily influenced by Augustine. Athanasius of Alexandria defended the uh, doctrine of the Trinity. It was more he defended the substance of Christ. I don't think it was until the 5th century that the doctrine of Trinity was actually completely uh, put in as orthodox, but people all, all along knew that Christ was God, and, but Athanasius defended that. So he was pretty big, pretty big in the Christian world too. Now we're going to get to modern, modernism. So this starts around the 17th century. Uh, you have Rene Descartes, which is probably the biggest one, who I don't know if he was a believer, if he wasn't a believer, but he was trying to defend the church. And the way he tried to defend the church is he said, okay, these people are coming along, and they're, saying, they're starting to say that, that reason, that some of this is unreasonable, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise this universal bar of doubt. And if anything can be doubted and cannot be proved with absolute certainty, then we need to throw it out. It's not truth. So he has his model, I think, therefore I am. That starts the whole rationalist. We get into rationalism. That reason is ultimate. Reason is supreme. Um, objective truth is still there. They still believe in objective truth and realism. But now we start to question the Bible and Scripture because now we're starting to get into areas where it's not completely rational. It's irrational. And so Rene Descartes, in an attempt to kind of defend the church, he takes a rationalist position, which starts to bring in the skepticism that we see until today. So he he tried to make very clear and distinct uh, definitions of what's true and what's false. Then you have John Locke who comes in, who's another rationalist. John Locke says that faith without any kind of reason to it needs to be thrown out. We need to be completely rational, and any kind of faith that doesn't have any kind of reason with it is irrational. We need to throw it out. No proposition contrary to reason can be accepted as divine revelation. He's the, he's the fountainhead of many deist works. Deism is his belief that God kind of is out there. He created the world, but he never intervenes in the world. He kind of stands at a distance and just lets us do whatever we want. 
Many of our founding fathers, well, not many, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, were heavily influenced by John Locke. And just as, as an example, how they were influenced. Oh, I should mention, too, with modernism era, supernatural starts to be looked, frowned upon. There's not, re- there's not a supernatural world. It's natural. It's, nature is self-contained. There's no supernatural world outside of it. And so Thomas Jefferson wrote the Jefferson Bible, which is about the life and the ex- ethics of Jesus Christ. This is how it ends. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and departed. The end. That's Thomas Jefferson. That's deism at its finest. He took all, anything that had to do with anything supernatural and took it out of, the, out of his writings, and, and it was all about just the ethical life of Jesus Christ. No supernatural. So reason has priority over faith, and that just keeps going on through the modernist era. You see it all the way through into the 20th century. You have Immanuel Kant, which came in around the 19th, 18, or 1724, so the 18th century. And he, he started to contribute to the idea of relative truth. So he, this is where post, you start to see little bits of postmodernism start to play out. So he wrote The Critique of Pure Reason. It's one of his most famous works. And he starts to question absolute truth. And he starts to uh, propose this idea of relative truth, how truth is relative to each person. It's subjective. He argued that the true knowledge of God was impossible. According to Kant, facts have nothing to do with religion. So spiritual matters were moved more to realm of opinion. God's special revelation was ejected from realm of truth and certainty. So Immanuel Kant was what you would call the counter-enlightenment. He went against the enlightenment, which was all about rationalism. And Kant, in reaction to that, he was part of the counter-enlightenment, which what they did what he saw was he saw reason starting to win against religion and in an effort to defend religion. Like Descartes, he took the other side and he started to defend it by irrationality. So you have Descartes on one side defending it by rationality and you have Kant on the other side with irrationality. So a perfect example is the Matrix. So... Let me get down to the scene from The Matrix. The Matrix starring Immanuel Kant. So there's a scene. Spoon boy, do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. Neo, what truth? Spoon boy, there is no spoon. Neo, there is no spoon? Spoon boy, then you'll see that it is not the spoon that bends. It is only yourself. There's another scene, Neo. I thought it wasn't real. Morpheus, your mind makes it real. If you're killed in the Matrix, you die here. The body cannot live without the mind. So Immanuel Kant, people say Immanuel Kant was about reason. But when reason connects with reality, that's when it stops with Kant. He talked all good about reason, but once it had to touch reality, then it was no longer good. 
In Stephen Hicks' book, Explaining Postmodernism, he uses this example. If I'm up here and I'm saying, I'm all for women's rights, I'm all for women's rights, but then, but, and women are great in the kitchen. They're awesome in the kitchen. They're amazing. But they need to stay inside this kitchen because once they leave this kitchen, it's no longer that way. They're useless. There's no other, there's nothing else. Just the kitchen. It's kind of like Kant and reason. Reason, once it leaves our skull, it's no, it no longer touches reality. Reason is good inside our own skulls, but once it leaves, it never touches reality. So it's the sense, it's, it's the sense, our, our minds, reality is malleable to our minds. Our minds are like a mallet, and reality is like, is malleable according to our senses. So, George Orwell, you know who, what book he wrote? Yep, Animal Farm. Reality exists in the human mind and nowhere else. That's Immanuel Kant. Okay. Then in the modernist era, you have Charles Darwin. Notice when I read these names out, you start with Rene Descartes, and as, as the names get closer and closer to the 20th century, their thinking starts to move further and further away from God. So you have Immanuel Kant, Kant you have Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, Hegel, Sigmund Freud, John Paul Sartre, Albert Camus. I'll talk about them here in a second. Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche said, all things are subject to interpretation. Whichever interpretation prevails at a given time is a function of power and not of truth. So any claim to truth is a power grab. It's all about power. If I claim to have absolute truth, it's a power grab. He said that faith is not wanting to know what is true. And he also said, in heaven, all the interesting people are missing. That's Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche, though... He was very prophetic in what he saw when people started to take God out of society and when people started to take God out of life around them. So he wrote this writing, The Parable of the Madman. And if you guys ever listen to Ravi Zacharias, you've probably heard this. He reads it a lot. It's one of, it's, I love this poem or this parable because it was exactly what happened in the 20th century. He, he, he just nailed it dead on. It's called The Parable of the Madman. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost, asked one. Did he lose his way like a child, asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped in their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? 
Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to cleanse ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground, and it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he said then. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on the same day the madman forced his way into several churches, and they are struck up as requiem maternum deo, led out and called to account. He has said always to have replied nothing but, What after all are all these churches now if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of God? Requiem eternum Deo, rest in peace, God. Friedrich Nietzsche. And that was about 70, 80 years before we really saw what started to happen. He also, in his philosophy, in Nietzsche's philosophy, he had this philosophy of Ubermensch. Ubermensch is like this post-human, above-human a superhuman. You could also call call it the Superman. It's not really translatable exactly from German to English, but this idea of a Superman was later really influenced Adolf Hitler and the Nazi, the Nazi philosophy and ideology. That's where they got their idea of the Aryan race, the master race, the T4 euthanization program. Let's euthanize the disabled. Let's get rid of the Jews because we're going to make a master race. And I, Adolf Hitler, am the Superman. So Nietzsche was very influential in the Nazi ideology. So now that God is out of the picture, we have Karl Marx, where society is our savior. If we have a classless society, then that will save us. We had national socialism. If we find the master race, we weed out the weak, then that'll be our savior. National socialism, as Joseph Goebbels says, national, as he said, national socialism is my religion. So you had socialism, national socialism, or national socialism, and then you had Karl Marx, Marxism. And we saw what happened. World War II, you had 40, 40 million people killed. In the 20th century alone, you had 180, around 180 million people killed by democide. Genocide is where you have lots of people killed, uh, like an ethnic cleansing. Democide is people killed under their own government. Out of the 180 million that were killed, around 110 million of them were killed by Marxist uh, governments, Stalin, 
Pol Pot, uh, Mao, those are the three major ones. Stalin being the worst. Probably out of that, you probably have about 70 million through Stalin. So modernism in the 20th century didn't really get people anywhere. As it's obvious, when mankind is elevated to the top of the evolutionary ladder, this is what happens. When God's pushed out, you have bloodshed. You have man trying to conquer man. It's all about natural selection. And another, if you listen to Ravi Zacharias, he, uh, he likes to read this creed on the world by Steve Turner. This is full of satire on the modernist mind. This idea that mankind is, is supreme and that we don't need a god and that we can that we can conquer things through our use of science and technology. So this is called Creed on the World by Steve Turner. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better, despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals are bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes the nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all except perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson, what's selected is average, what's average is normal, what's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors, and the Russians would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth, accepting the truth, but there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. P.S. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is as rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills ten, troops on rampage, whites go looting, bomb blast school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. Now in modernism... We, a lot of people think that science is opposed to faith, and we kind of get this idea starting in modernism. But when you look at the scientists, especially scientists like Sir Isaac Newton, Kepler, you still saw this teleology playing out. They, they studied it to help their theology. It was Sir Isaac Newton who said that atheism is so senseless and odious to mankind that it has very few professors. What he was saying is it was repulsive. Atheism is repulsive. Kepler said that with geometry, the studying of geometry in itself is 
evidence that man is created in the image of God because geometry flows from the very mind of God. And so you had these major scientists that the reason why they studied was to understand God more. Kepler, Kepler said that our, that our God is a God of order and not of disorder. But what you started to get in modernism is you started to get this split. Leslie Newbegin called it a dichotomy between facts and beliefs, personal opinions and facts. So what was fact was now starting to become public. That was public truth. And our beliefs start to, start to go to the realm of opinion. So back in the pre-modern time, when, when we said that God exists and God lives in the Trinity, in the relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, those were actually at that time deemed facts. The definition of facts has been changing. And now facts is pretty much what government decides it is, what the public, public and, the, and the majority decides it is. But with your beliefs, your own personal beliefs, those need to stay private. And that starts to occur through modernism as well. But you've got to understand the scientists, the majority of the scientists in the modernist era, and still, until you started getting into this, this uh, very skeptical uh, ideology that starts to play out, especially in the early 20th century, the scientists all had this assumption that God existed and that they're studying nature and things around us to understand God. So then you get in, then you start to get even more positive. You get into John Paul Sartre. The bare valueless fact of existence. Let's pretend the universe has meaning. One may create meaning in his life by following a certain course of action. Life begins on the other side of despair. As Bertrand Russell said, that we have to base our life on a firm foundation of unyielding despair. Pretty positive. Albert Camus, who's an existentialist philosopher, he said that now for philosophers, the only important question is the question of suicide. That's what happens when God's out. Life is absurd. Suicide is the only important question. Life has no meaning. Life is absurd. What I like... Francis Schaeffer uses this image of a two-story house. So you have skeptics and atheists on the first floor. On the second floor, you have this belief in supernatural and a belief in God. And in reality, an atheist will say, theoretically they'll say there is no God, but in reality, they always have to end up jumping up to that second level where God is. When they try to say that there is morals, there are, there are morals and something is wrong, so you have Albert Camus who taught that life is absurd and there is no morality, but then he's arguing against what the Nazis did to the Jews. But how can you say that what they did to the Jews is wrong if there are no moral laws? If it's all relative morality and moral relativism, then who are you to say what the Nazis did is wrong? There's a movie out there called Judgment of Nuremberg. I don't know if anybody's seen that. It was done in the 60s, 1961, I believe. And it was about the Nuremberg trials, uh, the, the trials of the Nazi judges. And what these judges did is they signed off on thousands and thousands 
of sterilizations and euthanizations of disabled children and adults. And their defense was, I was doing what the German law at that time told me I could do. That was Nazi law, and I was abiding by the law. What the prosecutor did, which was brilliant, is he showed images of the concentration camps, the millions of bodies that these bulldozers were pushing into graves, and showed people that there was absolute morality, that this, there is a law above the law of the nation. And in the end, the judges were, were sentenced. The bad thing is that story is most of those judges got out within five years. But it's a great movie because it shows that at that time, people did still believe in an absolute moral law. And in reality, you can't, sh- you can't shoo away absolute morality. You can't shoo away God because morality is there. That's a, that's, the idea of absolute morality is always used by apologists in the Christian world to argue for the existence of God. Because you can't just live without any kind of morals. So, this all making sense? Okay. Let me see. All right. Here's the modern thinkers you got. Let me see, this is going a little slow here. Rene Descartes, John Locke, Karl Marx, Nietzsche, Sigmund Freud, John Paul Sartre. Sigmund Freud, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Freud, but a lot of his teaching was that when people act out in aggression, when you see people shooting up schools, stuff like that, it all boils down to the fact that they have these sexual impulses inside and they want to hold them in. And eventually it blows up. These sexual impulses blow up. And it's all because of that that then you have uh, the issues that occur. And then in the, uh, the poem here by um, Steve... Turner that I just read, the, the Creed on the World, he, men- he mentions Master and Johnson. Master and Johnson was a laboratory that did experiments on uh, uh, sexual partners within a lab, and they did experiments on homosexuals within a lab, on all sorts of sexual partners in a lab. They started out prostitutes, and they just went down the line, and they just did all this experimentation, and all over revolved around our human sexuality, which was probably... Majorly, what they study was probably majorly influenced by Sigmund Freud. Okay, now we're past modernism, and we get into postmodernism. So we have here—I don't know if you can see it real well—but you have an author of a book, Neil Armstrong walked, and the author says Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, July twentieth, nineteen sixty-nine. You got three different readers. Paul Mills walked on the moon July 20th, 1969. Another reader interprets it. No one has walked on the moon. Reader, third reader. Neil Armstrong went to Saturn. It's, it it kind of it makes me think about our daughter Sophia. She'll sing a song to us and she'll mix like six different songs together. She'll be like, I was walking and Maximus has a unicorn horn and then God I love you. And I'm just like, what is she saying? I'm trying to interpret what she's saying, and probably nobody there understands what she's saying, so everybody's interpreting it a different way. And she just mixes all this stuff together, and that's kind of how I see postmodernism. So postmodernism, 
you have you, you have the effects of World War II, and people start to really doubt the whole modernist uh, era. So we talked about pre-modernism. We got into modernism, and now we're starting to see a push away from modernism. And pre-modern was a reaction to it. So after World War II, people started to doubt this whole idea that humans are inherently inherently good and uh, humans are the top of that evolutionary ladder and science, Marxism, national socialism will save us. People started to see this. So you had a lot of uh, just skepticism towards uh, the modernist era. Yeah, uh, like I said, 40 million dead, World War II. Where is God in all of this? Adolf Hitler said the day of individual happiness has passed. It's all about national socialism. So you have all of this. Then comes in postmodernism, which I say around the fall of Berlin Wall. Usually historians will say that. But as I mentioned before, Immanuel Kant, a lot of his ideas were very postmodern, and it started there. In fact, postmodernism is nothing new. Just like King Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. You have the sophists, and you had Socrates. Socrates believed that the life that is unexamined is not worth living. Socrates taught that there was truth, there was absolute truth, and that we spend our whole life learning the truth. The sophists on the other side believed in relative truth, that there is no absolute truth, it's what we find to be the truth, subjectivism. So postmodernism is not new. you got relativism. Spirituality is better than doctrine. Now we're going to start seeing kind of a correlation between oneism and postmodernism. And that's when you start to get into this spirituality. Spirituality is better than doctrine. Religion is a bad word. Spirituality a good word. Forerunners to postmodernism, Nietzsche. Nietzsche was a forerunner. You had Martin Heidegger, which he was back, like I said, you had influence from Immanuel Kant, and then you have uh, Nietzsche, and then Martin Heidegger, which uh, there's some controversy about how much he was associated with the Nazi party, um, it's kind of irrelevant. But what Martin Heidegger taught was the possible ranks higher than the actual. In the end, all is nothing and nothing is all. That's very postmodern and it sounds very oneness. There's actually uh, experts in Zen Buddhism and Taoism that would say Martin Heidegger knew them, knew those systems very well. And the, through his teachings, it's very similar. Many of the ingredients of Martin Heidegger's teaching, conflict and contradiction are deepest truth of reality. We no longer make distinctions. We need to bring those distinctions together, kind of like the yin and the yang. And then if we look back to pre-modern, that wasn't the deal. Aquinas said that the task of a philosopher is to make distinctions. Martin Heidegger, we need to embrace these contradictions and when they come together, that's truth. Reason is impotent for truth about reality. Words and concepts are obstacles that must be destroyed. Logical contradiction is not failure or meaningful. Feelings are a deeper guide than reason. Entire tradition of Western philosophy is based on non-contradiction, and it's an enemy to be overcome. He had a strong anti-science an anti-humanist uh, framework. 
which influenced a lot of the green movement, which a lot of postmodern thinkers support is the deep ecology that rocks and plants and bugs have as much value as human beings. That's the gist of deep ecology. We now worship nature, oneism. So I have postmodern thinkers, Martin Heidegger, he was uh, majorly influence, influence on postmodern. Jacques Derrida, which Jacques Derrida was a deconstructionalist. Most postmodernists don't like to be called deconstructionalist. A deconstructionalist is in the area of linguistics. That's the main, I would say, the main drive and attack of the, the postmodern narrative or their worldview is that words are objects to be defeated, like Martin Heidegger said. Words cannot really convey meaning. How the reader of a a book reads their meaning into the text. So it's kind of funny because you'll start to see the contradictory nature of the postmodern worldview. Here they are writing all these books about how words don't mean anything, but they expect you to understand what they're saying. It's completely contradictory. And we really need to have compassion for these people because it's... Some of them are, are they're, they're brilliant people, and they have a passion teaching this. And it's just, we should have compassion. It it's, seems absurd to us, but it's, these people are really thinking this. Uh, Michael Foucault, 1926-1984. John Leotard. Uh, there's this idea, I don't know if you heard, ever heard the term meta-narrative. That's kind of that's something that in, if you ever read N.T. Wright, you'll hear a lot about that, or Michael Goheen. The meta narrative is the idea that there's, like I said, there's a you've got your acts within this drama of scripture. You have this play. It's it's the meta narrative. We're all inside this narrative. Leotard, what he said, I love saying his name, Leotard. He said that we are rejecting all meta narratives, and now everything is just a micro narrative. It's just uh, specific to a culture, and so you no longer have a grand narrative. Uh, I gotta hurry up. I'm running out of time here. Like I said, postmodernism, you start to see it first in the arts. This was in this was uh, Marcel Duchamp, D-U-C-H-A-M-P. He was very postmodern in his art. So an art gallery asked him to do a, a piece of art here. This is a this is called the fountain. It's a urinal that he brought to an art gallery. Ducamp, or Dijon, is how you pronounce it, he was part of the Dada movement, D-A-D-A, and they were very postmodern in their artwork. Their saying was, Kunst ist scheiße. If anybody speaks German, you know what scheiße means, S-H-I, can I buy a T? So art is, it's worthless, it's meaningless. This, this urinal is just as big as, say, the Mona Lisa. Speaking of Mona Lisa... He also did this, uh, he put a mustache on Mona Lisa, a little goatee on her, this beautiful work of art, and he just made it into a parody. The inscription L-H-O-O-Q there, that's a French inscription. When you translate it into English, it means her hot A-S, can I buy an S? I'm not going to cuss because it's the first time I'm up here talking, so that would not be good. Then you got postmodernism and architecture. Who knows what the purpose of that is? Anybody know where this is at? 
Don't answer, babe. That's in Prague. It's the dancing building. So it's a dancing building. That's kind of this idea of postmodern uh, architecture. Uh, so that's kind of the idea we got here. And I've got a yin and the yang, which is very, very postmodern, kind of that idea. Martin Heidegger, nothing is all, all is nothing. Postmodernism is a philosophy that affirms no objective truth or reality, especially in regards to religion or spirituality. The common phrase is, that may be true for you, but not for me. Leslie Newbegin said this, The relativism, which is not willing to speak about truth, but only about what is true for me, is an evasion of the serious business of living. It is the mark of a tragic loss of nerve in our contemporary culture. It is a preliminary symptom of death. Gospel in a, that's from Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. It confuses matters of opinion with matters of truth. Truth becomes a game. Truth is game common among postmodern writings. They do things just to offend, just to offend, just like Deshaun. No clear viewpoint is expressed. They're the worldview that rejects all worldviews. That's the contradict, contradiction there. Rejection of absolute truth. Um, like I said, it's not nothing new. Um, and now we're in a we're in a time where. Our culture is very much like the Roman, Roman culture and the Greek culture that Paul witnessed in, where you have the uh, religious plurality, the religious, religious pluralism. So postmodern rejects any comprehensive set of beliefs. It doesn't t- talk much about reality. It's not interested in reality, but they emphasize the topic of language and linguistics. They deconstruct it. Uh, an example of postmodern thought within the church would be the emergent movement. Now that we don't, now that we don't know what words mean, and we don't know if words can actually describe truth and reality, now we start to question. Another term could be liberal Protestantism, where we don't know if the Bible is the inerrant word of God. We don't know if these words actually give us truth, and so that's kind of an effect of postmodernism that you'll see even within Christianity. So the virgin birth, does it really matter? Homosexuality, do we really answer that? Does it really matter? Positive elements, postmodernism recognizes that humans aren't inherently good, that humans do cause destruction, that they are, they do, a lot of them are out there for greed and power, and they'll step on anybody to get it. They, they're also this idea of uh, cultural relativism and how there's these micro-narratives within each culture. There is a little bit of truth to that, and we need to always be honest with ourselves. And you'll see a lot of missiologists like Leslie Newbegin and Michael Frost point this out. When you go to another culture, you're, a lot of people go to another culture and they try to bring an Americanized gospel. They try to bring, if you're from Britain, a Great Britain model of the gospel and we always need to need to be aware of the way that we present the gospel cross-culturally it's not to say that there is an absolute truth across all cultures but we just need to be aware and they bring that out the negative elements of postmodernism that we can't know reality reality doesn't exist it doesn't really matter um, the postmodernism and oneism correlation now that Humans have been shown to be a failure when we trust in just humans. It starts, and, and the rejection of truth, it starts to in, uh, enter in the interfaith movement. 
Spirituality is good. That's postmodern spirituality. That's very oneism. Rationalism failed. It left the gap in meaning. So now we need to look to something else. We're no longer looking at the God of the Bible. Now let's look at spirituality and let's look at paganism. Let's look at oneism. Both paganism or oneism and postmodernism, they both emphasize experience over what is true and then spirituality over doctrine. And that is postmodernism in a nutshell. Any questions? Postmodernism is a very complicated. It's very general. I covered some of the main. Yeah, oneism. <laughs> yeah, it's moving into the spiritual. Um, I mean, you always see kind of you'll see with thoughts they all you know they're always cyclical like i said history is linear and so you got genesis to revelation is linear but philosophical thought is cyclical it's going to keep coming back and coming back and so postmodernism is starting some people say it's kind of the the uh, tail end of modernism it's the decay of modernism and um you'll still see bits and pieces of postmodernism but now it's kind of we're in this uh everyone's spiritual now this whole oneism the Beatles actually were heavily influenced. They're very, they were in, very influential on Eastern thought coming over to the U.S. You better believe any any music, any movie you see, there's going to be some kind of philosophy that it's giving to you. You may not sit in a class and listen to what is postmodernism or what is modernism, but you better believe the stuff you're watching, the stuff you're listening to, there's going to be postmodernism. We were watching uh, Sons of Anarchy the other day. Has anybody watched Sons of Anarchy? Well, uh, Jack's one of the main actors. He's always like journaling. He's always like journaling, and you're you're hearing his thoughts out as he's journaling. And it just I, my ears perked up when you when you start to pay attention to stuff, you start to see this in what you watch. And at the end of this journaling, he said, "Every man needs to find his own truth." And I was like, "That's exactly what I've been studying here. This is postmodernism at its finest." So, any other questions? No? Okay. All right. Let me go ahead and close us in prayer. Uh, thanks for your time. Uh, let me close us up. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this time that we have here together. Um, and just pray that we glorify and honor you as we go out. Um, that we won't just let this sit in our heads, but we'll start to, to be aware of what's around us, what philosophies and ideas are being thrown out around us, this whole idea of what's true for me and what's true for you. And just understand that there is absolute truth. Just help us to always remember the authority of Scripture and the inerrancy of your word. Like Peter says that all Scripture, or like he says that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Just help us to always remember that. Just thank for his time again and, and uh, keep everyone safe going home tonight. In your precious name, amen.